0: path to feeling happier isn't necessarily about changing our circumstances, it's often more about changing our behavior and changing our mindset. Those things often have a much bigger impact on our overall flourishing than we expect.
1: Welcome to Episode 3 of the Coursera Podcast where we have conversations with renowned experts and industry leaders to explore global trends impacting the future of education and work. I'm your host, Arunav Sinha, Vice President of Global Communications at Coursera. Today, we will dive into the important topic of mental health and tackle questions like, how do I live a meaningful life? And what are the building blocks of being happy? Despite how complicated and subjective these questions may seem, Dr. Laurie Santos, a renowned professor at Yale and leading expert in positive psychology, wants you to know that leading a fulfilling life can actually be simple. Dr. Santos is a leading authority on the evolutionary origins of human thought processes and an expert in decoding the complex science of happiness. Her groundbreaking course at Yale, psychology and good life teaches learner what the science of psychology says about how to make wiser choices and live a life that's happier and more fulfilling. In a remarkable feat, this course has become Yale's most popular class in its 300 year old history. And the free online version of this course, the science of Well-Being, has attracted more than 4 million learners on Coursera. Welcome, Laurie. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me on the show.
1: What sets you apart, Laurie, is your profound understanding of how our minds often deceive us about what truly brings us joy and happiness. In fact, your research has found that many of us do the exact opposite of what will truly make our lives better. I'm hoping that our conversation today will make us all better prepared to successfully incorporate personal wellness into our lives and break down some misconceptions about what truly makes us happy to kick off the conversation i would love to learn more about the beginning stages of your research as a professor of psychology and cognitive science what led you to focus on the subject of happiness and well-being
0: for most of my career I was interested in a very different topic. Um, I'm an expert in comparative cognition, which means I study how animals think about the world. And so a lot of my early research was trying to figure out what makes humans so different than other animals. I studied this question in non-human primates that work that live at this field site, um, and also domesticated dogs um, who came into our lab, you know, from the folks around town who were able to help us out with studies. And so that was kind of what I focused on for a really long time. But I became interested in the science of well-being when I took on a new role on Yale's campus. In 2017, I became one of Yale's heads of college. Yale is kind of one of these weird schools like Hogwarts and Harry Potter, where there's like, you know, colleges within a college, it's a kind of Gryffindor, Slytherin sort of thing. I became head of Silliman College, and that meant as a faculty member, I was living on campus with students, like really taking part in their community, seeing what their life was like. And honestly, I didn't like what I was seeing. I was seeing the college student mental health crisis up close and personal. You know, were so many students of mine were reporting that they were feeling depressed or anxious. They're having panic attacks. I'm seeing students who are experiencing suicidality, but even, you know, those levels mental health dysfunctions weren't as bad as just seeing, you know, just how stressed and overwhelmed and burned out students were on a regular basis. I really wanted to do something about this. You know, I didn't like that my community was experiencing such a mental health crisis, to be honest. And so I decided to, you know, being a nerdy psychologist, I was like, well, I can kind of figure out what my field says about the sorts of things we can do to alleviate some of those mental health issues to kind of feel happier and flourish more. And so I put together this new kind of class that I hadn't taught before. This is this class I christened psychology in the Good life, and really the idea was to give students practical strategies they could use to feel better. You know, it was a new class on campus, so I figured you know 30 or so students would take it. You can imagine my surprise when it you know ballooned to over a thousand students. One out of every four students on campus was trying to get into the class the first time we offered it. It was pretty cool. I mean, it showed me that students are really voting with their feet. They don't like this crisis of feeling depressed and anxious, and I think they they really wanted to take an evidence-based approach to how they could feel better. You know, I think they liked that it was a scientific class that was really focused on you know psychological scientific evidence that we could use and strategies that were really practical but also evidence-based as well.
1: Yeah that's one of the incredible things what has started as a response to a crisis on campus has essentially become a global phenomenon with more than 300,000 people joining your course. But tell us about the journey of creating these courses and their impact on students. You talked a lot about the evidence. What evidence you're seeing on people.
0: Yeah, and so we were actually able to do a lovely study in collaboration with the folks at Coursera where we could ask this question. When we first offered the class, on Yale's campus, you know, I didn't know it was going to be so large, like I thought it was going to be like 30 students. So I didn't think that, oh, this will be a great opportunity to actually do some data collection about whether the class is working or not. You know, I didn't realize we'd have such a huge sample size. But when we put the class on Coursera with the name The Science of Well-Being, you know, we really had the sense that it was going to attract a lot of folks. You know, the mental health is such an important topic, and I think there's so many learners out there who really want to learn, you know, these evidence-based approaches. And so we decided to, to, to track this, um, you know, in Collaboration with a colleague at John Hopkins, David Yaden, who could sort of study some of these positive psychology interventions. We decided to test people's well being before and after they took the Coursera class. And we compared it with another Coursera class that, that Yale offers, just an introduction to psychology class that was taught by my former colleague, Paul Bloom. And st- learners got, had a chance to opt in. You know, if they wanted to take part in the study, they could just opt in. And they just did a quick happiness survey before and after the class. And what we found was two things. One is that learners in both psychology classes. felt better and reported flourishing more from time one to time two, which is cool. I think it means that, you know, taking a Coursera class improves everybody's flourishing, right? But more interestingly, we saw an even bigger impact for taking this science of well-being class. In other words, learning about these specific strategies and the specific evidence-based practices you can use to improve your well-being isn't just like, you know, you just learn these things. These learners are actually putting this into effect enough that it's actually showing a big significant effect on their well-being. On average, our learners on a 10-point happiness scale went up between a point and a point and a half. So it's a pretty significant jump. And that's really exciting because that means when we get this content out at scale, it's not just teaching folks stuff. It really can actually change you know how they're interacting in the world and the practices they bring to their daily life.
1: So clearly, our CEO often says learning is the source of human progress, but it seems like learning is also a source of well-being and happiness.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the course itself and what it actually teaches. And many people believe that happiness is largely determined by external factors like wealth and success. What does the science of well-being reveal about the true sources of happiness?
0: Well, it's it's kind of nuanced, as you might guess, right? In in some ways, it sort of depends. You know, if your circumstances are really terrible. You know, if your wealth level is that you're living below the poverty line, if your circumstances are that you're a refugee or you're in, you know, like war zones or crisis, obviously changing your circumstances are gonna matter a lot for your positive emotion, your flourishing and so on. But the important thing to realize is that that's not a lot of people, right? Many of us have enough money to put food on the table. Many of us are not living in war zones and so on. But we still believe that changing our circumstances Mm -hmm. would matter if I just got a different job or if I just got a little bit more money or if I just got that new relationship I'd feel happier. But researchers have tested this and it turns out that for those who have pretty good circumstances, changing your circumstances doesn't really matter that much. Let's take wealth, for example. One very famous study by Nobel Prize winning economist Danny Kahneman found that at least in like 2009 dollars, if your average salary is around 75k, at least in the U.S., doubling or tripling your salary is not going to have an effect on your self-reported well-being. That's not what we think. We think if we could you know, quadruple our salary, all of a sudden we'd feel happier. You know, Many middle class people believe that, but the data just seems to suggest that Just simply not the case. And so, really, overall, what the science is showing us is that the path to feeling happier isn't necessarily about changing our circumstances. It's often more about changing our behavior and changing our mindset. Those things can have a often have a much bigger impact on our overall flourishing than we expect.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so looking within ourselves, there's a lot more to do than changing the circumstances in some ways. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, and in some ways that's really good news, right? Because, you know, for, for many of us, it's gonna be hard to quadruple my income, you know, tomorrow if I wanted to feel happier. But it, it turns out that's not the source of happiness. The source of happiness is you know for example getting a little bit more social connection and getting a little bit more free time you know in, investing in things like sleep and exercise doing nice things for other people those are behavioral changes that we know actually have a huge impact on our happiness and we can do the same with just changing our thinking patterns you're developing an attitude of a little bit more mindfulness and presence developing an attitude of gratitude where you're savoring and attending to the good things in life and even developing more of a more self-talk that's a bit more self-compassionate where you're kinder to yourself and recognize your common humanity the science there's just tons of studies that show that these things actually matter much more and as I said that's good news because those are things we can change much more easily than you know changing our income or our deep circumstances in life where we live you know who we're married to and so on in some ways it's not the change isn't hard it takes some work to change your behavior and your mindset but in some ways it's easier than changing our circumstances
1: yeah that's right so in your work you actually discussed the concept of psychological immune system. How can individuals strengthen this immune system to better adapt to their life's challenges?
0: Yeah, well, so the psychological immune system is this term that refers to the whole host of processes we have that kick in when something bad happens. And this is one of the reasons that our circumstances don't matter as much. We assume, you know, if I lost my job tomorrow or if, you know, I had a a scary medical diagnosis or just something bad, really bad happened, that that would make me very unhappy. But the research shows that we kind of misdiagnose that. We're wrong both about how unhappy we'd be, so we predict it would you know really affect our happiness and it doesn't affect our happiness that much, but more we're really wrong about the duration of the impact of these bad events. You know, so we think you know, if I had a terrible medical diagnosis, that would affect my happiness for a really long time, but it doesn't really impact us for as long or as much as we think. And the question is like, why? You know, why are these negative events not hitting us as as hard as we expect. And that's where our psychological immune system comes in. We have a whole host of behaviors to rationalize when bad things happen, to seek out social support, to to develop narrative and meaning and stories that allow us to make sense of the bad thing happening. And those processes wind up kicking in to make negative events not as bad as we seem. And so it's not so much that we need to necessarily strengthen our psychological immune system. We need to remember that it's there because it winds up protecting us much more than we think. I think so often in life we're risk-averse because we're worried something bad might happen. You know, should I apply for this job? Oh no, I might not get it and I'll feel rejected. You know, should my students, you know, should I ask that person I'm interested in out? No, I, you know, what if I get rejected? What if something bad happens? When you realize you have this psychological immune system that's protecting you, that's kind of picking you up when you fall, you can be a little bit more risk-taking. You can, be, you can rely on your own resilience a little bit more. And so I think this is the power of the psychological immune system. We all have it, and it's sort of there to protect us, just as our physical immune system protects us as well.
1: Yeah, so that's a very interesting thought because... Often there is a little bit of a contradiction which goes in our mind, which is we tend to remember negative events a lot more, traumatic experiences from past, even childhood. People go into long depressions, thinking about things that happened to them 20 years back. In circumstances like those, how can we harness this immune system?
0: one of the things we need to remember and one of the things we teach in that class is that, you know, negative emotions, negative experiences, they're normative, right? Failures are normative. We are human, right? And, and this is part and parcel of taking a little bit more of an approach of self-compassion, right? Is to recognize that things aren't always going to go our way. We're not always going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes too. We're just human. Of Like, of course that's going to happen. It's, it's in some sense normative. It's normal to do that. The research shows that having self-talk, that recognizing that negative emotions fail, or normative, it can be really helpful for us. One, it means we're not, you know, just rejecting those negative emotions and trying to suppress them all the time. You know, the research shows that suppressing your emotions are really bad. It negatively affects your decision making, it negatively affects your memory, it can lead to cardiac stress. so we don't want to be kind of, you know, tamping down those negative emotions. But a practices of self-compassion where you recognize your common humanity, where you recognize that things like failure and messing up are normal, that also allows you to explore a little bit more. It prevents you from procrastinating. It allows you to sort of embrace what life is really going to be like, which is like sometimes things are not going to work out great. I think that, you know, embracing the fact that our negative emotions are normative, you know, it really allows us to take a healthier approach to finding more happiness in life. You know, I sometimes worry that people pick up my class because they want to engage in, you know, like I, I really want to be happy all the time, right? But no one's happy all the time. You know, this is what a lot of folks call toxic positivity, where it's like, ah, I just have to worry about being happy all the time. If I'm ever sad or anxious, you know, something's gone wrong. No, those things are normal. And, and, that, and they're really part and parcel of a meaningful and a good life, too.
1: So, in fact, that actually brings me to a very important question is, can you discuss the importance of mindfulness and meditation in promoting well-being, and how can beginners incorporate these practices into their daily routines? And I have an addendum to that. Uh, I was in Dharmshala in India. I was doing a session with Buddhist monks. And one of the things they talked about as part of mindfulness that every time you have negative emotions, watch them, don't try to dispel them. Watch them, stand, be a bystander. Watch you go through that. Does that part of mindfulness It allows you to ingest them, process them more meaningfully.
0: Yeah, I mean, so there's so much work suggesting that individuals who are more mindful, and by that we just mean kind of being present, being present in the world, but being present and being present with your emotions, but having that presence with a certain kind of attitude, which is the attitude of acceptance, right? I'm going to kind of watch my emotions, and even if they're bad, even if it's sadness, anxiety, or whatever, I'm just going to allow those emotions and be there. I'm not going to judge them. Research shows that that kind of mindfulness attitude really does promote happiness. Individuals, when you're paying attention more, even if your emotions are a little bit fraught, you wind up self-reporting feeling happier and having more positive emotion than if you were kind of trying to suppress those emotions or just kind of distracting yourself. But I think this idea of accepting and allowing our emotions can be even more powerful. Again, as we mentioned, negative emotions are are normative, and, and they're there for a reason. They're there to teach us something. So if we can, without judgment, allow our emotions to be there, and as you said with these monks, kind of watch our emotions, notice like, huh, I'm feeling really anxious right now. My my chest is feeling tight, you know, my, my mind is racing. Like what what's going on? You know, what how can I pay attention to that? Often it's awareness that allows us to figure out a solution or a path forward or even an understanding, right? We might not be able to shut off our anxiety, but we can understand like, huh, I'm anxious because, you know, so many Bad things are happening in the world, or I have this upcoming you know interview with Coursera folks, and I really want to do a good job, right? We can start to kind of come to terms with our emotions and recognize that they're there for a positive purpose. In some ways, they're there to help us. Tons of work showing really the the importance of mindfulness and presence, but especially the importance of like allowing our emotions when they don't feel so good, when they kind of feel a little yuckier.
1: Laurie, so one of the things you work a lot with the companies means you work with the corporate leaders and workforces as well. How we people, you know, we have meetings going on. We have budget discussions, deadlines, performance appraisal, planning for the next year. And there's just so much. And then you have the family pressure. You have all the things that you need to do with your wife, with the kids, with your spouse. How do I stay mindful in a corporate environment? How would, what advice would you have for professionals?
0: Yeah, well, I think this is one of the domains in which mindfulness can be even more important. You know, often the negative emotions we're experiencing, the frustrations we experience, even sometimes the failure we experience, it happens on the job, right? And our instinct is that if we want to perform well, we have to suppress those kinds of emotions, you know, stiff upper lip and just kind of move on. But the research shows that that just doesn't work. You know, there's lots of evidence that people across workplaces uh, will experience what's known as emotional contagion. So if I'm feeling stressed and trying to suppress my emotions my team's going to pick that up, right? And that's Mm going to make everybody perform a little bit worse. And so I think as in, in our work lives, we really do need to engage in mindfulness. You know, first of all, this step of recognizing I'm feeling really stressed right now. I'm feeling really burnt out right now. You know, the step of allowing, which you mentioned, okay, I'm just going to hang out with that feeling for a couple moments. What does it feel like? Paying attention, watch it, as you mentioned. But then after that, the step of self-compassion. Okay, what, what can I take off my plate? You know, these negative emotions don't feel good. What can I do? to really compassionately take care of myself. And the evidence suggests that in workplaces, if you can give people these strategies of mindfulness and nurturing, it's often uh, a particular meditation practice that some researchers uh, call RAIN, uh, which stands for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. Practices like that really allow even the most stressful workplaces to lead to less burnout. So there's some evidence that these practices, for example, of mindful allowing help palliative care workers not burn out as much, even when they're facing death on the line. They can help first responders experience less burnout and so on. And so I think in the workplace, this is another spot where we need a little bit more mindfulness in these practices of allowing things. Just as it works really well you know, in our non-work lives, it's also particularly helpful in our work lives, too.
1: Fantastic, in fact, you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, your research includes studies on behavior of animals like monkeys. Maybe there are things that we need to learn from primates. So what can we learn from animal behavior about the fundamental?
0: Yeah, I mean, one, one joke with the monkeys is that uh, oftentimes in meditation circles among Buddhist monks and so on, we they, folks often talk about the monkey mind, right? Which Which is meant to be like, you know, your mind is jumping around and going all these places. It's in some ways the opposite of presence or mindfulness. But what's ironic is when you hang out with monkeys, what you realize is, a lot of their time is spent being relatively present and mindful. You know, when they're eating, they're just eating. They're not checking their email and doing things. When they're grooming, you know, a friend or an ally, it really looks like they're sort of savoring it. And so one of the things I've learned from animals is that sometimes animals can provide a window into some of the habits that we as humans don't have, but we might be well-served by picking up.
1: Fantastic. So is that what you would say in terms of animal behavior and other the aspects of being happy and well-being? Are those some of the patterns that you've recognized in animals?
0: I think so. I mean honestly, you know, happiness has been less studied in animals in part because it's really tricky to ask mm-hmm. them. <laughs> you know, we have great measures to ask animals about their decisions, about their behaviors. We can have them make choices in real situations. It's harder to ask them, you know, the thing I ask my subjects than we asked our Coursera learners, which is like, how do you feel? How many positive emotions have you experienced? All things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? You know, these are really verbal measures that we use in humans, and it gets tricky to ask animals the same questions. I think there is some really exciting work coming up studying animal emotions and trying to come up with good nonverbal measures to tap into the same things. There's excitement ahead about the possibility of looking at some of these processes and really trying to figure out the strategies animals using the same as the kinds of strategies we can use to feel better, too.
1: Yeah. In fact, Laurie, you have a global fan following, no matter which country we go. Science of well-being is always one of the top courses. People often ask about you. Part of the reason is that because the pursuit of happiness is a universal goal. What in your own study and observations do you find different cultures and societies? Do they have a unique approaches to achieving well-being? Can you provide us some insights into cultural variations in happiness?
0: Yeah, well, there's a lovely uh, survey that goes out that Gallup puts out every year called the, the World Happiness Survey. And they really kind of look internationally at people's sense of positive emotion, people's satisfaction with life. And every year in March, uh, with the Gallup data, a group publishes the World Happiness Report. You know, some of the listeners now might remember it. You know, it's once a year they kind of rank different countries of like which country is the happiest. And it's often Denmark or Norway or one of these Scandinavian countries that comes out on top. Me being in the US is often, you know, solidly in the middle. And and pretty far down for a wealthy country, which is interesting. But all that means that we do actually have some interesting data about country-level differences in happiness, and those tend to kind of follow the lines that you might expect based on the kinds of things we were talking about before that matter for happiness. Countries that self-report being happier are often ones that are a little bit more socially connected. They often have structural policies in place like time off from work and time with family that allow people to hang out more and have a lot more free time, what, what social scientists call time affluence. These are also countries that seem to really move their bodies a little bit more, right? they are countries that kind of get a little bit more exercise naturally than a country like the US where people are driving more, people walk more, people bike more, and things like that. But there are also countries that have cultural practices that seem to promote happiness. You know, if you think of Scandinavian countries, they have practices like hygge, which if, if you don't know, is this word for kind of like a cozy savoring in the wintertime sort of thing. But all of these are practices to be present, to be mindful, and to be a little bit more social. And so I think when we see these cult- country-level differences in happiness or these cultural differences in happiness, it's worth remembering that it's not like some genetic difference. You know, it's not that Scandinavians are genetically built more to be happier than folks in the US. It just seems like they engage in the behaviors and the mindsets that we know seem to matter for happiness. And beyond that, they seem to have structures, you know, at the societal level and in terms of their governments and public policies to help promote that too. So it seems like it's individual differences in behaviors and mindsets and also kind of structural factors that make those individual differences even easier for people.
1: So you talk about the structural aspects and the support of institutions, support of countries and creating more happiness at a mass population level. But what many people struggle is work-life balance and stress in their own life. So what advice you can offer to help individuals lead a more balanced and less stressful lives?
0: Well, one thing is really to, to recognize that your mind might not be giving you the best advice. You know, we talked before about this idea of like, mm-hmm. we think it's our circumstances. Often when we're not feeling good, we think, oh, I have to change my job or I have to get more money or I have to, you know, make this circumstantial change. But the evidence really suggests that that's not the change that's going to matter. The change that's going to matter is a change to your behavior and a change to your mindset. So if you're feeling stressed at work, what can you do to change your mindset a little bit? Can you find ways to become more mindful, even if it's being mindful of those negative emotions, right? Take time to listen to them. Can you Mm. develop a more self-compassionate talk, right? To recognize that like a lot of people are feeling burned out right now. A lot of people are feeling anxious when they look at the news. That's normal. How can I take care of myself, right? So these are some of the mindset changes that matter. But then I think we need behavioral changes as well. You know, we really, especially when we're feeling stressed out, need to find time to be a little bit more social. You know, maybe even and especially if you don't feel like being more social because you're feeling burned out, those are the times that we need social connection even more. And then I think simple practices like finding time for exercise and sleep, those are often the first things to go when we're feeling busy at work. But again, this is our mind Making a decision that might be hurting us, you know, that might be the very time we need to invest in exercise, invest in sleep more. I think there's a a Buddhist saying that I'll mangle a little bit here, but the idea is if you don't have five minutes to meditate, then you should take 10 minutes to meditate, Ah. right? You know, like it's during the time when you really don't have time to do this stuff that you need to invest in it the most. And so I think all of these changes are ones that we talk about in the course and that the evidence really suggests can make a big difference if we can really find a way to put them into
1: practice. So are these the types of evidence-based techniques that you've explored as part of the Happiness Lab?
0: Yeah, and so we have a podcast that's really built on some of the work that we've talked about in the course. It's called the Happiness Lab. Folks can download it wherever they get their podcasts. And the podcast is fabulous because unlike the class that you know, tries to synthesize all the research at once, the Happiness Lab can really dig into a particular topic and explore it in detail. Right now, we have a season on that's looking at what we can do to connect better. How can we ask for help more effectively? How can we give compliments more effectively? How can we remember to check in on our friends? You know, we assume our friends know that we love them and that we care about them, but there's some friends in our you know phone list that we might not have reached out to in a while. What can we do to actually make sure we're doing that? And so the podcast is great because we can pick one particular topic and do a much deeper dive and explore the evidence, but also explore people's lived experiences as they've tried to put these practices in to affect in their own lives.
1: At the heart, Laurie, you are a researcher, you are an academic. So looking to the future, what do you see as the most promising areas of research in the field of positive psychology and well-being? I think
0: one of the big, you know, challenges for the field of well-being science is that sometimes people know what they're supposed to do, but it's hard to put it into practice. Um, You know, this is something I experienced myself being the person that teaches this class. You know, I know I'm supposed to get social connection and I'm supposed to exercise and I'm supposed to be self-compassionate, but on the ground when I'm feeling frustrated or scared or busy, it's hard even for me to put that into effect. But I think there's some lovely work coming out about Real strong methods for behavioral change. In other words, what are the ways that we can not just know this material, but really put it into practice? And that's some stuff I'd love to see, you know, where we are in the next five years, how to put this into effect. Another thing I'm really interested in is it's important, and we've, you know, with our Coursera class, we've really tried to get this content and this message out to adult learners. But I think, you know, I really wish my college students had learned this even earlier. You know, they should have learned it in high school and middle school. Honestly, they should have learned it as kids in grade school. And so, you know, with collaborators, I'm really excited about the possibility of getting this content to even younger learners. Um, In collaboration with Coursera, we've launched our Science of Wellbeing for Teens class, which is a sort of middle school and high school adolescent version of the class that we did for adults before. But I've also been partnering with colleagues at Sesame Workshop, which produces Sesame Street, to try to think about teaching these strategies to even younger kids. Because another thing I'm excited for on the horizon is, can we teach these practices to kids, and will that start making a difference in mental health earlier on so that people start developing habits that promote their flourishing you know, even earlier in life?
1: In fact, uh, my son, who has just recently turned 13, I've asked him to take that class.
0: Fabulous. Well, I hope he really enjoys it.
1: Yeah, he will. Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Laurie. Uh, One quick uh, logistics, where can our audience find you? And if they would like to know more about your work, how can they follow you?
0: Yeah, well, definitely consider taking the Science of Wellbeing class on Coursera. And if you're younger than 18, definitely check out the Science of Wellbeing for Teens. You know, if you're a parent, definitely get your kids to check that out. You can also subscribe to the Happiness Lab podcast, where you'll hear lots and lots more tips about how you can improve your work-life balance and feel a little bit better. And if you're even more broadly interested, you can check out my website, drlaurisantos.com.
1: Thank you so much, Laurie. I know that I'm going to leave this podcast much happier and with the strategies to deploy and be more happy on a long-term basis and our audience will uh, as well. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: What a great conversation. Sending gratitude to Dr. Santos for joining us today. From practicing self-compassion, to understanding and strengthening your psychological immune system, there are so many tools to achieve greater well being and mental mastery. To further understand these tools and the fascinating science behind happiness, you can explore Dr. Santos's course, The Science of Well Being, available for free on Coursera.org. And for access to the broader Coursera catalog of over 6,000 courses from top universities and companies, we're offering a subscription to Coursera Plus for just $1. Click the link in the episode description for more details. If you enjoyed this episode of the Coursera podcast, please rate, review and share. Until next time, I'm Arunav Sinha. Thank you for tuning in.